and welcome to Population Health Plugin, a show highlighting current public health topics in our community and things of interest to students across the university. My name is Elena Kidd, and I'm a program manager in the Office of Public Health Practice at the UAB School of Public Health. Today, we have a very special guest in our studios. We are honored and excited to welcome Lewis Gibbs. In the spring of 1978, when she was just 27 years old, Miss Gibbs discovered that her home and those of her neighbors in Love Canal were sitting next to 20,000 tons of toxic chemicals. That year, she organized the Love Canal Homeowners Association, which advocated for the health and relocation of residents affected by these toxic chemicals. After a two-year struggle, her efforts led to the relocation of over 800 residents and forced the government and companies responsible for the toxic waste to clean up the area. The movement resulted in the creation of the EPA's Superfund program for cleaning up toxic waste sites. In 1981, Ms. Gibbs created the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice, which is a leading resource for grassroots activism. Ms. Gibbs is in Birmingham to share lessons learned from Love Canal with the School of Public Health. While she was here, we wanted to invite her into the studio to speak briefly about the legacy of Love Canal and her current work with the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice. So thank you so much for being here. Your story is very inspirational and one that really drives home the importance of community activism, never giving up, and fighting for justice. So first, can you take us back to 1978? You were just 27 years old, raising a family in Love Canal, a neighborhood outside Niagara Falls in upstate New York. And I imagine from the outside, Love Canal looked like many other neighborhoods in the area, but it wasn't. Can you tell us about the neighborhood and what it was like living there before you discovered that Love Canal was located near a toxic waste site? Actually, it was an idyllic neighborhood. It was um, young families. Almost all of us were young. It was kind of a new neighborhood. It had the river, the mighty Niagara River to the south, where you could just go down and throw your fishing pole in and catch a fish and bring it home and walk home. We had a little store. We had two churches and two elementary schools, literally in the center of our neighborhood. And every day, because back then in school, Children went to school in the morning. They came home for lunch and went back to school for the rest of the day and then came home. So our community, because it was young and because of the way the school operated, there were constantly children in the sidewalks giggling and riding their big wheelies and their bicycles, either going to school or coming home for lunch or going back to school. It was just a live, vibrant, young thriving, happy neighborhood. For listeners who may not be familiar with the history of Love Canal, before the neighborhood was built, the land, including the partially filled canal, was owned by Hooker Chemical Company. During the 1940s, the company and others used the land as a municipal and industrial chemical dump site. Over 20,000 tons of toxic chemicals were dumped into the canal before Hooker Chemical filled it up and covered it with dirt and then sold the property to the Board of Education in 1953 for just $1. The neighborhood of Love Canal was built around the canal, and an elementary school was built on top of the canal property, and that was the elementary school that your son attended. Yes. What warnings did the Board of Education receive from Hooker Chemical Company when the land was sold, and what information did you receive as a homeowner when you moved there? The Hooker Chemical actually put a clause in the deed that transferred the land for $1. 
that said there was industrial waste buried in the land and that they shouldn't put any structures on it. Back then, when you thought industrial waste, you don't think what you think today. So they didn't think it was something to be worried about. And they built the school. At first, they actually did try to build the actual physical school on top of the canal, but it was all liquid underneath. So they had to move it back, but the playground was over the top of Love Canal, and the chemicals would just emerge through the through the soil. But the school board, you know, they're, they're like your school board here, I'm sure. They're just moms and dads and community people. They're not toxicologists or chemical hygienists or people who would know what industrial chemicals were, especially when you live in a chemical city. They're your friend because mm -hmm. they're paying for your mortgage. In our house, the thing about homes is people don't realize is that when you buy a home, they only tell you what's in that square parameter or rectangular parameter of your home. So what's next door to your home? You don't know. And you don't have a right to know, by the way. There was no warning on my house because it was three blocks away from my home and nobody seemed to know about it except for the school board in the city. And the science wasn't there to know what the hazardous properties of the chemicals either. Right. There was absolutely nothing about chemicals anywhere. And um, the only time it ever came up is when the surface would fall in on the playground. Actually, the dirt would collapse into a hole, mm -hmm. sort of like the Beverly Hillbillies back in the day. Uh, and chemicals would emerge, but the school board would just go and fill the hole. And that was it. And no, again, nobody really thought about chemicals as being harmful because we all lived, worked, and played in them, so to speak, on a daily basis. And that kind of leads me into the next question is, when did you finally realize the dangers of these toxic chemicals? And I know there are several health studies that came out from different sources, but what information was in those health studies? I, I actually learned there was a news reporter, Michael Brown, who was doing a series for the Niagara Falls Gazette. That was our local paper. And he's the one who really sort of raised the flag for me because he talked about these chemicals and what the health impacts would be. And, and I was reading this article, and I'm like, oh, wow, this is really dangerous. Those poor people. And I'm thinking, if we had two sets of numbered streets in, in the city of Niagara Falls, I thought they were on the other side of town. I didn't know he was talking about my backyard until like the fourth article. And I'm like, holy moly, this is me. <laughs> this is very dangerous. And, and that's when it alerted me that my children were having these symptoms, these diseases, and they were right there in that newspaper. And it had to, it had to be one in the same. There's no way that there could have just been something random going on in your household. There had to be some sort of connection. It did because I was healthy. My husband was, there was no history in our mm -hmm. family of, you know, blood disease and, and epilepsy and stuff like that. I mean, that, that's just, it was just weird. And so I thought, look, benzene causes blood disease. This one, I mean, Michael Brown put it all in the newspaper and I looked at it and said, this is our answer. And so what did you do next? Can you tell us more about the Love Canal Homeowners Association, why it was formed, and what activities were undertaken? Yeah, so we formed the Love Canal Homeowners Association. Originally, it actually was a parents' movement, because what we wanted to do was close that school. It was a public school, 
uh, it had 407 children, and the school had a specialty department for children with learning disabilities, which we didn't realize they were busing children into the community with learning disabilities, as well as many of our children had learning disabilities, and they sort of were centralized in, in this contaminated school. It was insane. So, so we went door to door, myself, uh, a few of my neighbors and friends, and asked people whether or not they wanted to close the school. And, and we got a petition going, because that's, that's what we thought we should do, because we've seen other people do that. Uh, and then we took it to the city, and the city just said, no, we're, we're not going to close the school for a bunch of irate people. Uh, so we took it to the state health department. Uh, and that was August 2nd, 1978. So I first read about Love Canal in June, so it wasn't all that far out. And New York State said, yes, we had to close the school. And it was sort of our first victory, but it also became very scary. So sometimes when you ask for something and you get it, it's like it reaffirms that it's as bad as you thought it was going to be. And, oh, my gosh, what does that really mean? It's it's kind of weird. But, yeah, then we were really frightened and began to organize more. And what were the other goals that were set forth by the Homeowners Association during that time? We had a number of them. One, we wanted to be relocated if they couldn't clean up our yards and they determined they could not. To the west of La Canal, most people don't know about this because it's never in anything you read. There was a housing development with 240 units of subsidized housing for, for poor families. You had to have five children to get in there. And we wanted those renters to also be relocated to another affordable home um, because they were low wealth. They needed something different than us. And we wanted a health study. We wanted to find out what was going on. Um, we, we just kept on asking for things. We wanted our own scientists. We wanted somebody on site when they came in to clean it up to blow the whistle. Like if something is coming out of the canal when they're cleaning it up and we are still there, blow the whistle so they will stop, mm -hmm. and it's somebody that we trust. And so we had a list of 12 demands. We won every one of those demands. And what challenges did you and the community face during the movement? One of the biggest challenges we had was trying to move government who has never had any experience at this before. We were the first site that was a hazardous waste site. So they didn't know what to do with it. So does it belong in the health department? Does it belong in the Department of Environmental Conservation? You know, what do we do with this? What is the level of exposure that's acceptable at a residential level? Because we don't know. We know in marine life. We know in workplace. And so a lot of the challenges were being new and being the first and sort of carving that path. Um, and then there were the challenges of just who we were. We were, you know, not low income, but pretty moderate income uh, families who were high school or less educated, who worked in the industry. 90% of our community worked in the very industry we were fighting. And so those challenges, how do we do that without people feeling like they're going to lose their job? And But we overcame them. And I think one of the things that we learned from Love Canal is being united and together and we have each other's back and we're open to creative ideas regardless of who's putting them on the table from the neighborhood, we'll take them seriously. I think that made a huge difference in our ability to win. And I know you're familiar with the 35th Avenue Superfund site here in Birmingham. Based on your past experiences and lessons learned from Love Canal, 
how should or would you begin working with community members to determine common goals, needs, and preferences? How do you identify what outcome the community as a whole would like to achieve? For example, do residents need to be relocated? Does there need to be remediation work? How do you work with political leaders to balance economic priorities against community health? I know that's a loaded question. That's a very loaded question, but it really isn't a whole lot different. It's really about bringing people together in the community, sitting them down and saying, what do you want? And that's how they establish their goals. And then really looking at, okay, some of you want to be relocated. Some of you may want to stay behind. Some of you want some redevelopment because there's all these abandoned houses and stuff needs to happen in the neighborhood. And, you know, you get that list together of goals, what the community wants, and then work on trying to figure out who has the power to give it to you. Can the city do that? And the answer in this case is no. City doesn't have the money to move those families and redevelop that area. Um, so who can, and how can the city of Birmingham be helpful? And you know the federal government can help, and the federal government has relocation money. They have money in different pots, such as HUD money for affordable housing and so forth. It's really about helping people think through. What is it they really want? What it, What is the A list? And then the B and the C and the D. They're not going to get all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then who has the power to do it? And then how do you make them do it? So how do we make the federal government provide resources to the 35th Avenue Superfund site to relocate people to redevelop that area? Well, the answer is first the mayor has to ask, right? And once the mayor asks and invites EPA or the other agencies here, then the mayor has to negotiate these deals. And and so it's really about going and speaking with the mayor and putting pressure on the mayor, who has a million other candles lit. I mean, it's not like he's ignoring this because he hasn't got anything else to do all day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then it's about getting, you know, Doug Jones and the federal representatives to also support these goals that the folks lay out and then finding those pots of money and bringing them here. It's complicated, but it really is very simple. What do you want? Who has the power to give it to you? And then what is the ladder of, you don't want to start with President Trump. You really need to start with your local government and work work your your way way up. And then how does your involvement in the Love Canal, or how did your involvement in the Love Canal influence you to create the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice? And what does the CHEJ acronym, what does it do? So after Love Canal, I got all these calls from people across the country who said, oh my gosh, I saw you on the news. I think I got one of those dumps. Or where did you find a scientist? Or, you know, a host of questions. And, and I realized that I may not be formally educated beyond high school, but I know a lot that could help these folks. And so I wanted to set up a center to do that. So that's where CHEJ emerged from. And since then, we've been working with communities all across the country to really figure out how to bring justice to to their particular um, cases and causes. And we've been incredibly successful. We win more than we lose. And when I say we, I'm not talking about CHEJ. I'm talking about the local folks in the field. They get themselves organized. They figure out how to move forward together. And they're really very successful. I think the, the message that this sends is that Democracy works if people are willing to stand together and speak out that, you know, a lot of people stay home and moan and groan that 
You know, so CHEJ provides that sort of organizing, helps people to figure out how to organize their neighborhood, how to get goals, how to figure out the strategy. We also have a science department with a toxicologist from Harvard who uh, will look at people's readings of air contamination or water contamination, whatever it is, but the science part, and then provide comments or questions community people should ask related to that. Um, and that is that is really important to local people because they're getting this information from these various agencies that are not trusted for a good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but our science department is really facing the community. So they are trusted and so they really understand and they do these follow-up questions. We do training about how do you ask those questions? What is a sampling plan? Uh, and we, we help people learn how to do that all for themselves. And lastly, what CHEJ does is it connects these communities. After what happened in ML, Alabama with the with the landfill there, you know, we connected Kay Kiker with this other group, and they're fighting a landfill, so Kay and them can work together. They don't need me. We get out of the middle, right? Because Kay's just as bright and, and good as, as Lois gives, and she can mm-hmm. do all the advice, and she has her, her frontline experience and so forth. So, so we connect people so that we create this spider web of leaders that can help one another and, and move forward for justice. Is there anything else you would like to add about Love Canal or your work with CHEJ before we close? No, I just think everybody should get involved in something and and really think, and here you have the 35th Avenue site, you know, that is a place where people can really be helpful either to the community group or pressuring the city or pressuring their, their federal representatives. You know, just tell them, call them up and say, get involved. Mm-hmm. You know, stop ignoring the site. Stop giving reasons why you can't. Well, thank you so much for being here. It was enlightening learning more about firsthand about uh, the environmental disaster at Love Canal. And thank you for listening. Please tune in next time for another episode of Population Health Plugins. <laughs>